All right, John's Gospel, chapter 6 this morning. Uh, Those of you here with us last time for the Lord's Supper, I introduced a self-descriptive phrase of Jesus found in John's Gospel, chapter 8 and verse 58. And in that passage, the Lord Jesus made the statement, Before Abraham was, I am. And the verb I am there is packed with spiritual and theological implication. Jesus was identifying himself with Jehovah God who revealed himself to Moses hundreds of years earlier at the burning bush. And you remember when God asked Moses, what should I tell the people, uh, what name should I tell them uh, of the person who sent me uh, to convey this message? And the Lord said to him, tell the people that I am that I am has sent you. And that phrase, I am, identifies the Lord Jesus with Jehovah God of the Old Testament as the eternally existing one who becomes in grace everything that his people need. Jesus used this verb to introduce other essential features about his person and about his nature and his mission. Now, if I were to meet someone for the first time, I might introduce myself and say, hi, I am Barry Somerville. But if I were to say, hi, I'm the bread of life, or hi, uh, I am the light of the world, it wouldn't be long before you would probably want to make a psychologist appointment for me. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, these phrases reveal to us who he is, what he's like, things about his character as the savior of the world that he wants to convey to people. And the first of these is found in our passage this morning. Twice Jesus says to the people, I am the bread of life. And he used this to to describe Uh, what happened on an event the previous day when he actually fed over 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children, and he fed them from five loaves of bread and two small fishes, a miracle indeed. Now, we all know the meaning of bread on that level. Bread is a staff of life. It stands for food necessary for human sustenance. And we live in a nation where this physical bread that gives us physical life is quite abundant, and most people don't have to worry from day to day where their bread or food is coming from. But Jesus wasn't speaking about that kind of bread. Yes, he certainly can and does meet our earthly physical needs. But our deeper need is spiritual, and that's what Jesus is addressing here. Like the physical bread that sustains daily life, Jesus is saying he is the true spiritual bread that provides us with eternal life. We take him into our life by faith, and in so doing, our souls are satisfied for all of eternity. So as we look into this passage of Scripture, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that Jesus described himself in these different ways to help us understand what he becomes for us. And Lord, as we look at this passage today, there are some 
some hard words to understand. The people of that day did not understand them. And uh, they didn't understand what they were seeing with their very eyes. And really, they rejected it. So, Lord, help us today to understand that Jesus is the bread of life, is the one who comes into us, much like we take in food, and he sustains us not just physically, Lord, but spiritually. He gives us eternal life. And as we come before your table, Lord, help us to be thankful that Jesus is our spiritual bread. And that we need to come to him in faith for forgiveness and uh, as our Savior. But then, Lord, we also know that we can feed upon your word. It's our spiritual bread to help us live for you each and every day. Bless us, Lord, with this passage we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we read through this text in John chapter 6, we find that it's interspersed with a lot of misconceptions and, and really objections to Christ's teaching. And as we began this passage, we saw the first of these. And so we're going to look at some of these misperceptions as Jesus leads up to the saying, I am the bread of life. And the first thing we find in verse uh, 26, Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the lo- loaves and were filled. All right, so what is, what's going on here? Jesus, the day before, had fed these 5,000 people that we mentioned earlier. And he went uh, across the sea back to Capernaum. And the people were on the other side of the sea wondering what happened to him. They finally figure out they need to just go back uh, by land to the city of Capernaum. And when they do, uh, they find the Lord Jesus and they simply ask him, Rabbi, how did you get here? Or teacher, how did you get here? Well, to Jesus, that really wasn't something that was relevant. And he dives right in and begins to teach them about the events that had occurred the previous day. And we find here that they have a misconception about the physical and spiritual concepts of bread that Jesus is talking about. And he tells them that they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. They're seeking him because they missed the greater spiritual point of his feeding the 5,000, a miraculous event. Back in chapter 6, verse 14, after this occurred, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So some of them perceived Jesus as the prophet that Moses said was going to come and be the Messiah. Uh, Others, in verse 15, therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So they have this in their mind. This is the Messiah. This is the king. This is the one who's going to throw off the the Roman power and make us free again. And we're going to make him king whether he likes it or not. Uh, And look, this king can feed his army. He just proved it. So they have wrong ideas about the Lord Jesus Christ. Many among these folks were poor. They were in daily need of physical sustenance. Here was someone who might be the ticket... Uh, to their daily welfare if they keep following him. 
But you see, all of them were only seeing Jesus from that materialistic perspective. Uh, One commentator said, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only the bread. And that's true. Their focus was not on heavenly purposes and realities, but earthly profit and material blessing and welfare. Some follow Jesus for the same reasons today. For instance, take the prosperity gospel. That promise is that if you have enough faith uh, and you pray hard enough, that you, you will have material wealth. You'll have more than what you need. Uh, and others promise different things like healing, miracles, signs, wonders. But everything is geared to your sight. What you can see here and now, not really to faith in Christ. Uh, it's all geared to what is visible to you uh, physically and sort of the deeper realities of your walk with God and your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast to their thinking, Jesus exhorts them as to what they should be seeking and laboring for. Look, if you will, at verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on it. So Jesus is contrasting the the spiritual with the material. Laboring and striving and seeking for things that do not last, and not the things that uh, you know the things that are are consumed on a daily basis. That's not the kind of food he wants us to be seeing in him. The, the food he wants us to see is immaterial. It leads to everlasting life. And so many people today they spend almost every day laboring and working for the material well-being of themselves and their family, but they give little or no thought to the deeper spiritual truths for the the well-being of their soul and how to have a relationship with God. And so they're laboring for the wrong kind of thing. They're tied up in this immediate life, and Jesus wants them to see beyond that. Then we move on to another misperception here. And that's a misperception about the work of God. But Jesus has just done a work. We'd have to say that was a work done by God and through God and for God. But they ask a question in verse 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, they're seizing on that word labor that Jesus used. He used the term labor. It's the same one as the word work in verse 28. So they're they're thinking about this laboring. And they say, what do we do that we might work the works of God? Now, these people have all heard about God. They're Jewish people. Their whole life has been about hearing uh, things concerning God. They're familiar with God's law. They know there's something special about this man, Jesus, who is also a Jew, and he's a religious person. 
but they think there's some work they need to do to please God. Now, isn't that just like lost humanity? If a person thinks about God, if a person's religious and is concerned perhaps about religious type things, isn't this what we usually think? What can I do to please God? What can I do to be right with God? So it raises that age-old question of working uh, to curry God's favor or somehow get under his good graces instead of trusting the grace he's already given to us. We think that we have to do something to save ourselves, so to speak. Now, Jesus responds to this very simply in verse 29. This is the work of God. This is what God wants you to do, that you believe in him whom he sent. Really simple. Just believe in the person that he sent. And, of course, he's talking to himself, but they're very obtuse and they're not getting it. But Jesus is the one that God has sent He's going to introduce himself as the bread of life and the work of God, which really is, is not a work at all, is believing, is trusting, is having faith in what God has revealed. Now, <clears throat> let's go on to the final misperception here, which has to do with signs in verses 30 to 34. Therefore, they said to him, Okay, now we're talking about works. We're talking about a sign. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Okay, now he says, Jesus says, you need to believe in him whom God sent. They come back with that idea of believing and they say, okay, what sign then will you perform that we might be able to see it and then we'll believe in you? What work will you do? So the idea of work and believing are brought into this question. And then they bring up something else. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right, so here there's a misconception about signs. And the audience now wants Jesus to work or perform some kind of a sign. If we're supposed to believe in you, give us a sign so that we, we can. We have a reason to. And the Jews were always looking for a sign, weren't they? They were always looking for uh, this so-called Messiah to identify himself by some kind of a miracle. Well, you know what? We're thinking here, okay, uh, weren't you there yesterday when he fed 5,000 men and, and their wives and children from uh, a few loaves of bread and a couple of little fish? Wasn't that a sign? Wasn't that enough for you to see and believe? Well, it never seemed to be enough for these folks. John records for us that the first sign Jesus did was uh, uh, turn the water into wine at the, at, at the uh, wedding at Cana. And then he records two more healings before he comes to this feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has already done a number of signs. Of course, these aren't all the things that he did. So the emphasis for them was on seeing in order to believe. But even when they saw, it was never enough for them to believe. And the purpose of these signs was that they might truly perceive 
who Jesus was, uh, not just stand and wonder uh, at what he was able to do, but to turn that into believing that he was indeed God's Messiah. And now they want to see something like the sign uh, of the manna in the desert. And that sign, well, to their mind, that kind of related what Jesus did the day previously. Uh, it, the man in the wilderness, well, that came down from heaven. That was a miracle. It lasted for 40 years. That was a miracle. It fed the whole nation of Israel. That was a, fear, a miracle. And some rabbis even taught that this would be a sign repeated by the coming Messiah. So in their mind is, okay, if you can bring manna down from heaven, then we'll believe in you. Now, Christ's response then leads to the figurative expression of the true bread. He answers in verse 32. Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he first of all corrects them. The manna didn't come from Moses, it came from God the Father. He's the one who provided their needs in the wilderness. But even though he did that and provided them physically, that was not the true bread from heaven. The real genuine bread that goes beyond giving you the needs of physical life, it gives you and provides for you spiritual and eternal life. And it's interesting here, it says that uh, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now that's in the present tense. So that's saying that my father is giving you the true bread. And as I'm reading this right now, our father in heaven is still giving us the true bread. He's still presenting it to every generation. We're reading the same thing that occurred nearly 2,000 years ago, and the invitation is still there. He's giving you all you need to know about Jesus Christ as the bread of heaven. So we need to take it to heart. Now, this bread, in verse 33, is not a loaf of bread that just came out of the oven. This bread is a person. For the bread of God, the true bread, which gives eternal life, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself again. But the people aren't getting it. They don't understand it. In verse 34 they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. It kind of seems like a light's going on. But when you read the whole context before and after, you know that's not what's happening. The, the majority of the crowd is not getting it. And the bread they're thinking of is still bread that's being given to us every day of a material sense. We don't have to worry about it anymore. So that leads now into Jesus explaining to them this concept of the true bread of heaven and that he is that bread. So the rest of the passage deals with that. Jesus, the true bread of life. 
And there's some points here we want to bear out that Jesus states in these next few comments. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, if you were in that crowd today, uh, would you have been confused? How can a person be bread? But Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. And they need to understand this. It's now clear and unmistakable what Jesus is speaking about himself. He's the bread of life, the true bread that came down from heaven and is capable of giving to people more than just physical sustenance. And look at what he promises as the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, if you think about that, how could he be talking about physical bread? Well, I got up this morning, put the coffee on, did a few little things, and I put my daily piece of Arnold's bread in the toaster and had a piece of toast with my coffee. I do that almost every day. Get it? I have to do that every day. I don't get up Sunday and think it's going to last the rest of my life. It's got to be done every single day. But Jesus says, the bread I'm talking about isn't like that. The person who partakes of this bread will never hunger and never thirst again because of the spiritual nature. And once they partake of it and they bring it into themselves, then they're taken care of for all of eternity. It's eternal life that it provides. So he promises that anybody who comes to him is not going to hunger and thirst spiritually anymore. He will physically, but not spiritually. Now we've learned that man is made in the image of God. And God intended that man would worship him. And so there's a hole in our soul that seeks to worship something And we search to fill that hole with all kinds of material things that we think will make us happy and uh, joyful and peaceful through life. Some search to fill it with a man-made religion, but none of those things satisfies. You're still hungering and thirsting. (coughs) But the only person who can satisfy that innate hunger and thirst for something that gives lasting peace and joy is Jesus Christ, the bread of life. I want you to flip back to Isaiah and chapter 55 because this echoes something that God says, an invitation that he gives to the prophet Isaiah. In the first three verses, read like this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money... Come, buy, and eat. So he's not talking about spiritual bread that you can go down to the market and buy. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you The sure mercies of David. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's inviting people to come 
For the bread, not that you buy with money and eat every day, but for the bread that is everlasting in nature. So he's inviting people to come to him. But look at verse 36. He says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They saw all these things that Jesus was doing. Have you noticed yet the emphasis on seeing? They saw the signs that Jesus did. They saw the healings. They saw the feeding of the 5,000, and yet they still would not believe him. They wanted another sign. Just one more. Just one more. They saw his perfections. They saw his love and his compassion. They heard his words that he uh, preached to them, unlike any they had ever heard before, but still the majority didn't believe. Bishop Ryle made the comment, the plain truth is that it is want of heart, not want of evidence that keeps people back from Christ. It's not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of belief. Jesus also promises here that anyone who comes to him, verse 37, I will by no means cast out. How refreshing is that? They're not going to be rejected. They're not going to be neglected. How many people go through their life with those kind of feelings and they've never heard of Jesus or they, they have heard but they haven't responded? Feelings of rejection, feelings of being neglected. The Lord said, if you come to him, I'll take care of that problem for you. Well, the next thing we see here is that Jesus, the bread of life, cooperates with the will of the Father. Now, the Lord Jesus is permanently going to satisfy our hunger and our thirsting for that which is spiritual in nature, but he does it through working with his heavenly Father. And in verse 38, he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I, my origination is heaven, not earth. And again, if you heard somebody saying that, you would be taking him to the nut house. He's saying, I am from heaven, but when I came down, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which of course is God the Father. So he states that he's come down. That implies his incarnation, God becoming man. But then you look over to verse 41. They don't get that. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. How can that be? Is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, the verb we know there means see. Again, the emphasis on seeing. They cannot see that he is the Messiah that God promised. All they can see is that, well, isn't he the son of Joseph and Mary? We see that. That's obvious. But they couldn't see that by all these actions, his teaching and preaching, that he is actually the Messiah is coming down from heaven. And his purpose was to do the will of the Father. Now, what is the will of the Father in this context? 
Well, that Jesus will not lose any who come to him. Verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now that is God's work in bringing people to Christ, an indication of election, that he's ordained many to come to Christ and be saved. If God had never done that, no one ever would be saved because they would not choose God on their own. The Lord has to initiate it in the hearts of men. And it goes on to say in verse 44, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God is drawing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody here this morning who's saved knows what that means. You know how God used circumstances and people and his word in your life that drew you to him. And maybe it drew you uh, struggling and fighting all the way, but finally you gave in. Because God was there pulling you to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the work of God that Jesus is cooperating with as he comes down uh, from heaven to earth. Then those who see the Son, for who he truly is, the bread of life, and believe on him, well, they're going to receive everlasting life. Verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son... And you have to see him with spiritual eyes because these people were seeing him and they weren't believing. He who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I'll raise him up at the last day. So how do we know all this is going to happen? Because he repeats over and again, I'm going to raise him up the last day. Now folks, one day, whether we believe in Christ or not, we're going to die physically, aren't we? We're going to be planted in the ground and our body's going to turn to dust again. But Jesus says, if I give you everlasting life, your soul is not going to be with your body in the ground. It's going to be with God in heaven. Because I'm giving you everlasting life. But a day is going to come when I'm going to even raise you up, raise that body up on the last day, rejoin it with your soul, and you will serve God in his heavenly kingdom forever and ever uh, in that future new heaven and new earth promise in Revelation. So Jesus says, these things are true because I'm going to raise you up. And it won't be long before he raises up Lazarus, and it won't be long before he raises up himself to prove that he can do that. So he's working with the Father to bring all those who will believe in Christ to himself. He's not going to lose anybody. But we have the responsibility to believe. Now that leads us to verse uh, 47. And that is this, Jesus, the bread of life, is superior to that manna in the wilderness. So let's consider that. Down in verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So if you trusted Christ, you have this gift of everlasting life. Then he repeats what he's already said, I am the bread of life. Okay? Okay. Now, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So there again is the comparison between the physical and the spiritual. The manna was given by God. 
It came down from heaven every day but the Sabbath day. It sustained the people for those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It provided physical life for them. But eventually, all of them ended up dying. It could not make eternal provision for them because it was not the true bread that came down from heaven. Now, in contrast, Jesus is the living bread who did come down from heaven. And if you eat this bread, you'll live forever. Now, the verb here uh, to eat that bread is in the aorist tense, and the aorist tense carries the meaning of once and for all. In other words, you only do this one time. This is indicating placing faith in Christ once for all, trusting him as your Savior. That's a, it's a figure of initially coming to Jesus, putting your trust in him, and being saved. Then Jesus gives us another dimension to this figure. He says again, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So now we have the dimension that as the bread of life, he is going to give that life to save the world. So that alludes to his sacrifice on the cross where his flesh will be torn and his blood will be spilt and he'll become the offering that will provide spiritual life for all those who believe in him. But once again, the audience in verse 52 is obtuse. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see, again, they're just, they're just stuck on the material. They think that you're supposed to go up and take a bite out of his arm, and that's going to give you life? That's not at all what he was saying. That's really kind of, uh, of, of silly. But that's what they're arguing here. They take it absolutely literally when Jesus is speaking figuratively. And as they're arguing about the meaning of this, Jesus doubles down on that figure of speech because he knows that those who will not believe will be confused by it, but those who will believe will understand what he's talking about. So he closes by saying, uh, by, by teaching us, Jesus, the bread of life, must be appropriated by faith. And that's the concept of eating that we see here. So he goes on to say in verse 53, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And they're thinking, what is he, some kind of a cannibal? But that's not what he's talking about. He takes the figure of eating and drinking to its extreme to demonstrate the necessity of assimilating Christ into your life. Now, how do you assimilate the necessary nutrients uh, for life from food and drink on the physical level? Well, you sit down and you have a meal. And you, uh, you eat your hamburgers and your fries and your milkshake. 
And I don't know how nutritious those are, but it's just an example of what you uh, put into your body to get the nutrients that you need for life out of them. And for most of us, it's an enjoyable experience. And it's what God has ordained to maintain our physical vitality. But spiritually speaking, if we're going to assimilate eternal life, we must eat the bread of life, which is a picture of bringing Jesus into your life. Not physically or literally, that would be absurd, but we do so by faith. And Jesus has already used several words to describe that concept. Coming to him, seeing him for who he really is, believing in him, and now eating his flesh and drinking his blood are figurative ways of describing, assimilating him into your heart and your life that will give you eternal life. And it's also important here that these verb tenses are in the aorist, which means a one-time event. So he wasn't talking about the communion table, that uh, I, I take the bread and I take the, 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 the fruit uh, of the vine, and somehow that's really my, my body and, and my blood. It's not. He wasn't thinking about that. This is a one-time event where you eat Christ, you believe in him, you trust him. And he gives you life eternal. But note also, as we close out here, as Jesus goes on, let me continue reading. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my body is drink indeed. Spiritually speaking, that's what gives you eternal life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And here's the other aspect of it. This is the ongoing aspect of eternal life, that you are abiding with Christ on a daily basis. The verb change is not a present tense. I'm constantly abiding with Christ. And he goes on to say, As a living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who is feeding on me will live because of me. So that's the idea of, of uh, the bread of life who went back into heaven, the living word, we now have the written word, and the written word is what we feed on every day to grow and to be enriched spiritually and learn more about God and what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so that's adding to our initial salvation, a walk with God, a life with God, uh, being sustained spiritually, much like we're sustained by bread physically. So he closes by saying, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus makes it pretty clear here what this is all about. The gift of eternal life begins by trusting in the Lord Jesus, by uh, appropriating the bread of life into me, into myself, my heart, my life, portrayed by the metaphor of eating and the bread of life continues as an abiding, ongoing relationship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, let me ask some questions. First of all, <clears throat> do you believe what this passage teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe he came down from heaven and became a man so he could save you? He is God in flesh. 
Do you believe that he perfectly accomplished God's will for your redemption when he died on the cross of Calvary? Do you believe that he gave his flesh to obey the penalty of your sin and mine? Do you believe he gives eternal life to everybody who calls upon him in faith, who believes in him, who comes to him, who sees him for he really is, and they appropriate him by an act of faith? If you say no to any of those things, you, you have no eternal life. You're lost. Have you trusted him alone as your Savior? Have you felt that God has drawn you to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you kind of, maybe even right now, sense that he is drawing you to receive Christ, to accept him as your Savior? As the Lord Jesus invited those people to come when he was on earth, he invites people to come now while he's in heaven. And we have to respond. And then as we come before the Lord's table this morning, are you abiding in Christ? Are you walking with him? Are you living in close fellowship with him? Are you thankful for all that he's provided for you as the living bread? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are again thankful this morning about Jesus' teaching as the bread of life. Lord, we know he wasn't talking about physical bread that we uh, bite and chew and take into our body. But Lord, in faith, that's what we're doing when we believe in him as the bread of eternal life. We're taking him into us by faith, trusting in his shed blood for forgiveness of sin. And so this morning as we come before your table, helps to understand this truth. And if there's someone here who's still isn't sure about their relationship to you, we pray, Lord, that you'll help them to come to me or someone they know closely and ask them more about receiving Jesus, the bread of life, so that they might have life eternal. Bless us as we continue now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.